This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Anusha Kellyan and I'm joined by my colleagues Stephen Bush, Patrick Maguire and Alva Ray to discuss Boris Johnson's first week back at work and what it means for the lockdown. And you ask us, how are the opposition parties faring in this period? So Boris Johnson is back in town, which means that, whereas I've imbibed this meme that Boris Johnson coming back means that lockdown can be easy. It means that now, instead of lockdown being a kind of like, we'll decide when the Prime Minister gets back, is now sort of actively the kind of text of British politics again, I guess. Is that an accurate way of putting it? Yeah, I suppose now now that he's back and in a position to make decisions, there's not this sort of artificial barrier to ministers sort of giving away a little bit more about how they're planning for the lockdown to be eased or modified in some way. Because before it was sort of like, an understandable limbo. And every time they were asked the same question at all of their press conferences or Keir Starmer brought it up or any of their own MPs brought it up, then, you know, there was sort of a a tacit understanding that they couldn't really decide anything anyway until Boris Johnson was back. So I suppose it takes away that element of it. But from all the evidence that we've had since, since he came back this week, we know that he's, that, you know, not enough has changed for there to be I think we spoke about the Telegraph flash on that Monday morning during the last podcast that he was going to ease the lockdown this week or something like that. That There's there's no indication that any such sort of speedy action or any big changes around the corner just because he's back in Downing Street. But I suppose what that does is that sort of exposes the divisions in the Tory party even more because there's no sort of excuse anymore. There's no sort of like, well, the prime minister's, you know, not here, so he can't make that decision. He's now completely exposed. No, it's interesting because obviously a speech people make much of is one Boris Johnson made when he was mayor. You know, people talk about it as the sort of purest expression of Boris Johnson's political id, which is um, where he compared himself to the mayor from Jaws who keeps the beaches open. And the interesting thing is that it's very easy to talk about Boris, the Telegraph columnist, railing against the nanny state and the mayor who cast himself in the libertarian libertarian mould of whatever the mayor from Jaws was called. And it's clear that he's not taking that gambit. A sort of 
it's sort of you know forcing the comments area and indeed the right wing press to reassess their idea of what Boris Johnson is and you know let's not get into get into armchair psychology over why those issues might be but the interesting thing is that clearly the wishes of the Tory press and and and, and Tory MPs look at the not one but two questions at PMQs yesterday of Tory MPs talking about garden centres and demanding they reopen. At times it seems that garden centres are more important to Tory MPs than schools. And yet there is there is no there is no real meaningful movement. Obviously there are the sort of very broad and quite faint contours of an exit strategy being drawn up, but it's certainly not a time scale. It is more a you know, a slightly more developed list of criteria. So yeah, the return of Boris Johnson hasn't been the return of, you know, a sledgehammer to the nanny state. It has been more of the same. I'm quite interested to see what these tweaks will be. I'm not sure if if the rest of you are still expecting some tweaks to be announced soon, but that would still be my expectation that I think that the expression was that they'll be undoing the top button of the lockdown. That fundamentally the lockdown won't really change but some tweaks will be made for various sectors I think that'll be interesting just because the the current rules have been in place for so long and people are desperate for something to change and it would just be interesting to see how much minor changes satisfy parts of the party who are parts of the conservative party who are feeling frustrated yeah my understanding is what we where we're basically going to head first because obviously the, the the most significant thing that happened this week was Boris Johnson returning and then kind of fairly definitively, essentially in the kind of debate within the party about like the open it up, open it up and the let's keep it closed for longer, basically when I'm a let's keep it closed for longer person. But one of the things it's important to remember about this lockdown is that it is we have locked down more as a society than the government has asked us to, right? You you see that with the like, you know, the kind of the people who, who think that, we didn't need to do this, keep going, oh, well, you can see that this was pointless because our peak was reached before two weeks after the lockdown. That's because from about the 10th of March, people, you know, large numbers of private sector organisations, including, of course, actually the NS, were encouraging their works to work from home. And from the 16th, I think, or whatever the Monday of that week was, the government was saying, look, you should do this. It was only the next week when they went, okay, we, I know we've been saying maybe you should do this, but what we really mean is we're going to legally make you do this. Now, the thing they thought on both the 16th and the 23rd was that they thought more places would stay open than did. They thought more people would take advantage of the change to make it easier for them to pivot to delivery. And they thought that more places which were already operating Click and Connect would continue to do so. In an odd way, right, if the story of the... 23rd of March I want to say the 23rd of March position where they basically went from that thing we've asked you to do we're now telling you I wouldn't be surprised if we actually saw something slightly the opposite direction where they kind of went those bits of the economy that we've said can work we would quite like you to do so which of course raises lots of interesting questions about like risk and etc etc but I kind of think that's where where things will alight first but I just think I guess I have thought for a long time that the fifth test making sure you don't have a second second peak that can overwhelm the NHS. Which, I mean, I think it's one of those things where I know, like, oh, they finessed it so they can get out of it. Just like, well, they finessed it from something which can potentially never be met, from something which can only be met in quite limited circumstances. So I guess I just still think that we will end up with something that looks a lot like this to most people. The big thing is, right, is at the moment it feels like the only people who are, go- who are sort of kind of willing to say publicly, let it end, let it end, 
are Tory MPs. I guess the question is, is how much do people feel the support for the lockdown in the polls is artificial? Because, of course, many Conservative MPs would say that that number is hollow. Those people are saying that because they feel it's the right thing to say. Yeah, that's so interesting about the um, the gap between, you know, what people are actually doing and what the government is actually making us do. I did quite a few pieces at the beginning of all of this on since the lockdown on police powers and what they have the powers to enforce. The actual law itself, where this is written down in the Coronavirus Act, is really different from, from some of the government guidance. So I think what's interesting is that people have listened more to what the government have said than, you know, what what is actually necessary. So you can still go to work just if you can't work from home. You can go and exercise more than once a day. They had to then update their, the College of Policing had to then update their advice to, to police to say, you know, people are allowed to sit down during exercise when they're outside and people are allowed to go and buy snacks or they're allowed to go and drive to go on a walk, for example. So it's it, it's really interesting that that kind of gap between what people are sort of it's not like people are reluctantly following the bare minimum of instructions. It's it's that people have have taken every single sort of government instruction sort of to heart, including the stay at home and protect the NHS, which, as we've seen with pieces that we've run and and with you know what doctors are saying, has has been quite damaging to some people's health who are suffering from things that aren't coronavirus. So I think it's going to be perhaps you know obviously this decision of when to end the lockdown and how is is a huge generation defining decision and i i, I think it's going to the you know the most difficult thing that boris johnson is going to face but it's also i think another challenge will be persuading people like you say those businesses that you know eventually can be the first to tentatively get back up and running it's going to be per- difficult to to persuade some people to either use them or to go back to work to to participate in you know in working for them again i think some people are going to have a real reluctance if you look at the evidence of how people have followed this lockdown it might be quite hard to get people to kind of ease back in and so i think that might be the next challenge i think that's also a very good point anish about the the legal requirements being very different to the advice because probably I mean presumably maybe the rest of you will disagree with this but presumably they're not going to change the coronavirus bill again in the next few weeks or when they plan on easing this that those legal requirements will stay in place for a very long time so if tweaks are made they will be made on the level of advice rather than on on the level of the law which is maybe some indication of what will stay in place and and where adjustments could be made because as you say you already legally can go out and exercise as much as you want but the advice is to only do it once a day you could quite plausibly change the advice to say you know you can you can leave your house twice for exercise you know and that wouldn't change the coronavirus bill and on lots of different levels maybe that's an an interesting baseline to see where the adjustments could be made without having to introduce new legislation. And and I do think it will hang on the sort of government comms of that as well. Talking of which, you know, we're we're on the, I think this is the day when 100,000 tests are supposed to be being carried out because that was the target that was announced to come in at the end of this month. And we're now at the end of the month. We're on the 30th of April. And that's, I don't know what you what you will think of that but that seems to be a bit of a, a government comms failure as well because what they've done is the is the classic thing of over promising and under delivering or or so it seems we, we haven't seen if, if they've actually missed the target yet but they've admitted pretty much that, that it's likely that they were going to 
Stephen, I know that you've written about that today about the uh, about whether it matters or not, whether they missed that target because we don't know what those those that um, amount of tests were actually for, and whether or not a hundred thousand tests a day is actually any use until we know what the government's strategy for testing is. But nevertheless, if you promise and then don't deliver, that severs public trust in what the government is trying to do in response to the pandemic. Well, I guess this is the big thing we know we don't know, right? Then. Like so, I think the reason why, actually, I, you know, just all start shouting at me if you think I'm I'm wrong, but I feel like the median backbench conservative basically kind of the reason why they think I think everyone in the world believes that the numbers and incumbent governments are enjoying are slightly artificial, but the kind of specific case that your median I am a conservative MP, I have a marginal seat, and therefore I'm understandably in a kind of continual state of nervous anxiety about that fact. Their cases, people say that we were too late, and at some point, the, them saying we were too late and them saying we're handling it well, the saying we were too late will cancel out the saying we're handling it well. And I guess the question is, is like, does missing the target matter? I think it only matters if it shifts people into thinking that it's been missed because the government's incompetent. I kind of think that because ultimately, why, why does the target exist? Because the government was having a difficult week in the media, and it's a big, reassuringly large number. The problem is, and this is kind of, I guess, the problem with, you know, all journalism in the era of social distancing, really, is I just don't know how much anyone cares about the target, right? The reason why the failure to meet the net migration target mattered so much is they went on and on about it in opposition. And then it became this kind of annual feast of like, the papers and whatnot going, you've missed it. I'm just not convinced that, I don't know, it doesn't feel to me like there is as much of a culture of, oh, you've missed this really important target around this partly because no one knows what it is the government wants to do with these additional tests. Another interesting thing on the subject of government comms is that if the government has a haphazard or or confused communications message inevitably especially when it comes to when it, when it comes to lockdown there is a danger that other sources of communications and other sources of legitimacy will fill that vacuum. So for instance, B&Q reopened down the road from me today. And if you know, B&Q reopens, if McDonald's reopens with social distancing measures, if Greg Greg's is going to reopen soon, I noted with uh, deep resentment because they don't have a Greg's here. Do they not? But it's yeah, like, it's not. Well, the thing is, that the, the great lie of Greg's, which is a Northeastern chain, is that <laughs> Greg's for me has always been a London thing. Because there are there are far more Greggs per capita in London than any other city, but yeah. Anyway, Gosh, that's interesting. If you know Greggs is reopening, McDonald's is reopening, B and Q is reopening, you know, across the country, then that is that itself is a communications message, right? It's just a communications campaign from the private sector who are saying we are judging, you know, the economy, Inc, TM, whatever, are judging that it is fine for you to come and shop here which is it, itself a, a form of social sanction, right? So, I mean, at some point, the reopenings are going to build up a head of steam and, and heads are going to be butted, as it were. Hi there, this is Alva again. We are calling all new statesman readers. If you would like the chance to help shape the future of the new statesman, please do fill in our audience survey which you may have already received a link to by via email, but we are also promoting on 
social media and crucially in the show notes of this podcast. We're really keen to hear from all readers, especially women, younger subscribers and international readers. By filling in the survey, you can get a six month subscription to the New Statesman for free and um, it only takes 10 minutes. Thank you very much in advance. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. For a section we like to call You Ask yeah. Us. And our question this week comes from Phil Lewis. How are the smaller parties holding up during the crisis? Well, regular readers of our Staggers blog will know that on Tuesday, five of them wrote to Jacob Rees Mogg saying they were getting a raw deal in the Zoom parliament for a number of reasons, really. One, because the sessions are limited to scrutiny sessions are limited to two hours. Your chances of getting a question if you are a Liberal Democrat, a member of Plaid Cymru, if you're Stephen Farry, if you're Claire Hannah or Colm Eastwood, or if you're Caroline Lucas, it's quite tricky. And also, business between business in the in the in this new hybrid parliament is carved up by the SNP, Labour, and the Tories. So really, if you're a small party, especially if you have you know if you are an SDLP MP or applied MP and you have, you know, specific regional issues to raise that you can only raise in Westminster. Obviously, you know, there are some things you can you can raise in your devolved legislature, but if you need to raise something with a with a UK minister, then you have a limited opportunity to do so. So in that respect, anybody smaller than the SMP in this parliament, notably that the DUP didn't sign that letter, although that probably has more to do with levels of wokeness than it does how raw a deal they're getting. But yeah, it's not great in, in that respect. And it's really interesting because thinking back to when I was researching that Lib Dem long read after their defeat in the last election, it was interesting in January, there was quite a lot of optimism within the Liberal Democrats. Obviously, their parliamentary party is small at the moment. But among their MPs, there was just this feeling that Labour was going to be bickering amongst itself. And that they had this real opportunity to be the grown-ups and focus on Brexit and on a whole other host of policy areas that each individual MP was going to be really on top of their brief and, you know, hold the government's feet to the fire and take this opportunity to sort of be the really interesting, clued-up people on policy. And I did feel like they did that in the months around Brexit insofar as they could, but that doesn't work so much not just with the the new setup in parliament but also the new setup with with a very different labor party and with Keir Starmer 
because again as as regular readers and listeners of the new statesman will know it's sort of the view of all of us and of lots of people in the liberal democrats that in the longer term liberal democrats success depends on a popular labor leader because in individual seats people think of the labor leader as the de facto lib dem prime minister and so even if they're planning on voting Lib Dem, they, you know, there's a measure of the popularity of the Labour Party baked into their vote. So like in the longer term, Keir Starmer being more popular, which he may well be, and certainly the Lib Dems think he will be, that's good for them. But in the short term, they're just not getting a hearing at all because they're much more similar to him than they were to Corbyn. It's interesting because Starmer is a man of the broad left, you know, he was a not even a teenage trot, a trot well into his um an actual trot an actual trotsky trotskyist not um a trot in the pejorative sense he doesn't share the same analysis as i'd be interested to hear what others think about this but it's never struck me that he shares blair's analysis of this which is the great tragedy of british progressivism was the rupture between laborism and and liberalism and that what would be best if the two worked together or reunited in in, in some form or other Starmer has always been much more about the Labour Party as the vehicle for British progressivism. And I, I, don't, I don't know whether those two missions are mutually exclusive. But the other thing is, and I think you've raised this before, Stephen, that if you are, I don't know, if you are Daisy Cooper or you are Max Wilkinson in Cheltenham, Max Wilkinson in Cheltenham, the Lib Dem PPC for Cheltenham, you know, he came within 900 votes of unseating Alex Chalk in December and Labour lost its deposit. Now, if at the next election, Max Wilkinson has another great night, Alex Chalk performs around the same, but Labour ticks back up to its 2017 performance in Cheltenham, which, you know, about 8 9% or even 7%, then Starmer being a good PM, candidate in the eyes of Liberal Democrat leaders, all of the things being equal, and obviously all of the things aren't equal, you know, there, there, is, a, there is a chance that even in those sorts of constituencies, it could hurt the Lib Dems as much as it, it helps them. Because a good Labour leader also impacts the Labour vote, even in seats where Labour don't have a, a cat in hell's chance. So I think the odd thing is, right, and obviously we, we this is very specifically become a conversation about the Liberal Democrats, although, of course, yeah, one of the arguments makes it seem a lot more belligerent. One of the kind of kind of back and forth I have with an SNP MP is and they will send me a joking text every time I refer to the Liberal Democrats as the third party. And I will point out to them that the SNP is either, in my view, the first party in the country they contest, or they are the fifth party, if you want to count the whole the whole of the United Kingdom. And either of those definitions is fine in terms of either votes or meaningful seats where they contest. However, third, to my mind, is a nonsense definition. But they're obviously kind of all right, because even though they're shut out of the political debate in Westminster, that dynamic helps them in the theatre that they contest, in which politics is in which essentially, if you're not the SNP or the Scottish Conservatives, well, you don't really get to to have a big a big role in discourse or on in on the six of the ten o'clock news. Whereas for the Lib Dems, it's particularly acute because I think in January they were very aware that, particularly when it became clear to everyone it was going to be Keir Starmer, that the upfront price of a leader who is popular among Lib Dem voters would be their opinion poll rating would go down, and of course their opinion poll rating goes down in in midterm anyway. But then they would gain the prize would be then it would be easier for them to gain Tory votes directly, right? Then yeah, you maybe the maybe the 
Labour vote ticks up a bit in Cheltenham, ticks up a bit in Esher and Walton, ticks up a bit in Winchester. But it doesn't matter because you attract a few more Conservative votes and, and they count double. Right Now, I suspect that calculation is probably still true. But I think what's kind of happened for them is it's like this thing where it's like the longer you wait for your order, the more you're aware of how much you've paid for it. And because like they don't get any attention... Yeah, I, I keep keep thinking when people ask about how the, the third parties, the, the smaller parties are doing, is once Vince Cable kind of said to me, he was just like, yeah, Lenin, yeah Vince Lenin Cable said, um, he said, have you noticed that there are basically two two columns that get written about the Liberal Democrats, which is people ask what the point of the Liberal Democrats is. They don't write about the Liberal Democrats for a year. And then at conference, everyone writes about how, why aren't we doing better? And you just thought, well, surely there's an obvious explanation here. I do think it's broadly true, right? Like, because unless they are exploding or having an internal crisis and there's no other news to write about, no one writes about them. They they kind of enter into this weird sort of spiral of self-doubt, recrimination. What's the point of us anyway? And when you add to that the fact that the Conservatives are really popular, yeah, they're even more popular than they were in 2019 because of this global turn towards the incumbent. And then you have a Labour leader who is popular among Lib Dem voters, further depressing Lib Dem vote. Of course, that is anxiety inducing for them. I think the bigger problem is, is that I, the main impact I suspect of COVID-19 on our politics will be to eliminate a lot of the issues from political contention that the Lib Dems usually sort of make their own. Like you saw this in the run-up, right, where their big thing was basically like, yeah, what about people in limited companies? I, 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 I like make it clear, obviously, lots of people who are in limited companies are not wealthy or well-off. But they were doing a very good job in their kind of space of, I have a nice house, but I'm concerned about, like, the condition of the public realm. That group of voters who they absolutely have to dominate on if they want to do well. And now, of course, that issue has kind of faded away from national conversation, even though people with limited companies are still very badly served by the economic offer on the table. So they don't have anything to say about that. When politics returns to normal in heavy inverted commas, is all of the kind of, you know, the stuff that Davey was doing about talking about, like, the treatment of veterans, is that stuff going to be a national issue? I just think that politics is going to become an argument about whether or not people should be worried about the debts that the state has accrued during this period. And the problem for the Lib Dems is their answer to that is very clear, but it's also identical to the answer of the Labour Party. Yeah, definitely. And I think even just in this period, you can see sort of one of the levers, if you're if you're a good media performer for one of the smaller parties, then one of the levers that you can pull to get attention and, and to bring your issues to, to the public debate is to is to be on the media and to be on those sort of magazine, political magazine programmes. And some of those have been cancelled. And the ones that do exist obviously have to make very rightly room for, you know, health experts, scientists people who represent civil service etc more so than ever because because of the topic of, of of the kind of debates that go on so i think they're finding it dif- obviously they can't complain about that but they're finding it difficult to find room on those usual programs as well same goes for nigel farage he's, he's sort of resorting to doing videos on the beaches in in sussex to talk about migrants instead of being invited onto the slots that he'd usually enjoy i'm also quite interested in the the psychology of being just the acting leader and not an elected leader the way ed davy is because not that he hasn't been doing, doing a good job. It's not it's not perceptible to, to me how he would be doing it differently if he'd been elected as the leader. But I just think in my own 
if I'm imagining myself in that situation, knowing I didn't have a genuine mandate would make me feel more cautious and make me seek more consensus within my party rather than stamping my own individuality on the role, which probably does, I mean, you'd think that that would slightly limit how much of a an impact you would make. But then also, I mean, I think we've all kind of alluded to this, but just there's the really obvious point that the Lib Dems have missed out on the sort of publicity round of having a leadership contest this year because of the coronavirus. And as Patrick reported earlier, Christine Jardine has said that she won't stand again in that leadership contest whenever it is. It's thought sometime next year. And I think, you know, I was looking forward to that as a really sad person. No, as a, I thought it was going to be quite an interesting debate about the future of liberalism, like speaking to the people who were running or planning on running or, you know, considering running. There were lots of differences of opinion bubbling under the surface of the Liberal Democrat Parliamentary Party. And it would have been really interesting to see those different candidates make their different cases for where they see their party on the the sort of left-right spectrum. You know, there's a definite difference of opinion between people who want to identify as a party of the left closer to Labour than to the Tories and the people who just see themselves as a third way party as liberalism as just an alternative to socialism and not on that spectrum at all I think that you know there were so many interesting debates and about you know how much they want to be the the party that is pro-Europe rather than liberal in the strict sense of it and they're, they're missing out on all of that and it will happen eventually but you know Christine Jardine isn't running anymore I think it maybe makes Daisy Cooper more likely to run because she's had more time to settle in in parliament because um, she was a new MP. But yeah, I think they've just they've just missed out on that as well. So there is a there's there's pressure to their federal executive is having to consider an appeal not by by any of the candidates about their decision to delay their contest, which means it may be back on. I think this delay has been pretty disastrous for Ed Davey because although I don't think that I do not think another leader would be getting more airtime. I think that it means he's gone from being perceived to being having done a good job of minding the shop, I think, to, and this might just be among people who are more active in the party, but I think there is a kind of growing pe- sense of people going, oh, shouldn't we be getting more attention? Question to which the answer is no, which I guess to come back to the overarching question of how the smaller parties, right, the, the answer is inevitably badly, right? It's bad for the smaller parties when there are there are no animating issues that separate them from the top two, and it's hard enough for the Labour Party when the central issue is politics is, are you for or against the novel coronavirus? And answered which they're all like, yeah, I'm, I'm not into it. <laughs> A virus more sinned against than sinning. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Stephen Bush, Patrick Maguire, and Alva Ray. We're produced by Nick Hilton, and our music is Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. If you want to subscribe to the New Statesman, we've got some great offers, so just go to our website, newstatesman.com. We've also got two new newsletters that you can sign up for, one called World Review, which gives you the latest global news, and one from our archive, which digs up some of our oldest pieces. Thank you.